Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. The 49th interview in this podcast series features Jackie B., Nicknamed Happy Jackie by her meeting mates, Jackie first came to Alcoholics Anonymous to grudgingly fulfill the once-a-week AA meeting requirement set by her 31st psychiatrist. It was the culmination of a life that began as a two-pound baby who'd spent the first six months of her life in an incubator. Raised with the instilled belief that, even as a teenager, she was still too weak to accomplish anything, Jackie was spurred on to making herself strong and self-sufficient. But it took alcohol to ease the pain, doubt, and shame long enough for her to accomplish it. With each success was further validation that she couldn't possibly be an alcoholic, though by that time it was apparent to everyone but Jackie. By the time she had been through several abusive marriages and raising two children, her drinking was worse than ever. Her 80-hour work weeks and admirable production as a vice president of a bank shielded her from the stark self-realization that she was a serious alcoholic. But even as a functional drunk, ruinous living eventually caught up to Jackie's rapidly deteriorating life. In emotional and spiritual desperation, Jackie finally admitted her powerlessness and reached out to her higher power for help. By 1994, she found her way into AA, and she was on the road to recovery. However, in 1997, Jackie abused Valium for one day. The following day, she was back in an AA meeting. Though she could have easily sloughed off the one-day slip, she was inspired by what she had learned in the program about telling the truth, and thus reset her sobriety date. She's been sober ever since. Jackie's experience in AA speaks to the very tenets of the program. Since getting sober, she's stayed close to AA through regular meetings, service work, and sponsoring other women. Her sobriety and relationships with many AAs have helped her navigate through the darkest of times while bolstering her belief that a life energy beyond understanding will continue to guide her journey every step of the way. I think you'll find Jackie's story to be both uplifting and meaningful. She's got the kind of vigor and energy that enrich the meetings she attends and the people she touches. So, relax for the next 60 minutes and enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my guest and AA sister, Jackie B. Hi, my name's Jackie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for being on the show today. I know you from a Zoom meeting that you and I have been going to for for quite some time. Are you still doing Zoom meetings predominantly, or are you back to going to live meetings? I'm pretty much live, but I do I do a lot of other meetings in other states on Zoom. Still, so I've been I speak a lot. It's pretty fun. I've spoken Thailand and Spain and Canada and, and the Louisiana Bayou. <laughs> so you're what they call a circuit speaker. Well, I don't know if I'm at that level where all those other circuit speakers are, mm-hmm. but I'm certainly uh, getting my name out there because I'm getting calls by everybody and I don't even know where they get my name. So, Well, this is something that is akin to a speaker meeting. This is just a great way to allow many, many people to hear the speakers. So how long have you been sober? 24 years. My sobriety date is 7 It's got a good ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> was, that, was that your first sobriety date? 
No, it was not. Actually, my first sobriety date, believe it or not, was 11-7-94. 11-7-94. Okay. It doesn't roll off the tongue as easily, but... So there was a three-year period between your first time in and your sobriety date to this day. Actually, yes. So what was happening in uh, 1994 that made you think, "Ah, maybe it's time for me to go into AA? Well, I had been to 30 psychiatrists. 30. <laughs> try, try, I, know, I don't know how I had time and drink and work and all that. Uh, but my, my actually went to a th- my 31st psychiatrist. Oh my and she said, she asked me, do you have a drinking problem? And I said, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but she, she interviewed me. She goes, are you actively drinking right now? And I go, well, yeah. And she asked the ma- magic question, mm-hmm. uh, how much do you drink? And I go, a little, like we all do, a mm-hmm. little. I wasn't going to tell her the fifth of vodka mm-hmm. night. <laughs> and uh, so she sent me to some AA meetings, and I just didn't relate. But something happened on November 3rd, 1994, when I came home from one of her appointments, and I I was done. I was broken. Mm. I was broken. I was mentally, physically, spiritually broken. I had nowhere to go. I had nothing to do. I had no questions. I had no answers. And I just laid down on my living room floor and I said, I didn't say, God, help me quit Mm -hmm. drinking. I said, God, please change me. Please change me. And I woke up the next day and went into an AA meeting and all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, I'm an alcoholic. So that's how I got, there's a little backstory right, to that. Right, I get that. Everybody's got that. So yeah. was there something about the 31st psychiatrist uh, meeting with you that made this happen? Or do you think it was just coincidental that after seeing that many psychiatrists and drinking that whole time that this was just the difference? What happened was, is I went to my HMO for, for another psychiatrist. Okay. <laughs> and I had called so many times that they said, we're doing something new and we're actually sending them to, I think they were so used to me calling for psychiatrists. And she says, uh, we're going to send you to Tucson Alcohol Council. Just take a test and, uh-huh. and interview. And if everything's okay, we'll let you have a therapist. And so I went to that counselor at Tucson Alcohol Council uh-huh. and I got interviewed. I was on my lunch hour. And when I got done with the interview, she looked at me and said, I just want to let you know you're in the chronic stages of alcoholism. And I said, what? And she said, yes. And I believe your liver has stopped processing alcohol because of your story. Because I kept saying, well, I drink very little, but I still get drunk, you know, mm-hmm. drinking less. <laughs> she was she was going to send me to, to a uh, recovery mm-hmm. hospital. And I said, oh, no, I'm too busy. I said, I'll find my own therapist. So I looked at the phone book, got this therapist out of the phone book that was near my house. And voila. <laughs> There she was. She was in recovery. And she said, I don't treat anybody that's actively drinking. So go So figure. God's first working there. And then you're laying down on the floor and you're done. Yeah. But this is in November of 94. This happens, right? So how yes. long did you stick around AA? Three, almost three and a half years. What happened was they nicknamed me Happy Jackie. And I loved AA. Uh-huh. And I was, I was GSR. And I was secretary. And I had sponsees. And I loved the program. And I did the steps. But there's something called uh, your character defects. Uh-huh. And I had a couple character defects that what it was was I would go to my grave rather than you think I'm stupid uh-huh. or weak. 
and I was having a few things happen to me, and I was too ashamed to tell my sponsor or anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I had surgery. Uh, They gave me Vicodin, and I wasn't a pill person at Mm -hmm. all. And yet, when they gave me the Vicodin, I I got hooked on them. And then uh, the next day, I went in somebody's medicine cabinet and took two Vicodins and went to the meeting the next day, and somebody called on Happy Jackie. (laughs) And I said, uh, oh, I love my life. Everything's fine. And all of a sudden, I started crying, saying, I need to change my sobriety date because I had a secret. And I I had taken a couple of Vicodins out of someone's medicine cabinet. And so that was 7-11-97. So, in essence, you were out for... The period between the taking of the two pills and your admission the next day. Exactly. I had reached a level of honesty because of Alcoholics Mm -hmm. Anonymous, and God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And that was, was, wait a minute, I need to tell you the truth, I'm lying here. My fear of you thinking I was stupid or weak was so strong in me, and Mm. yet God interfered again and and said, nope, it's time, and raised me to a different level of honesty. Why do you think people feel that way, especially in a room full of people who are so accepting no matter how you are? You mean as far as keeping the secrets? Yeah, as far as feeling the way you felt at that time. Well, it it was so ingrained in me. You know, I had a stepfather who who literally beat it into us. You're stupid. You're no good. You're nothing. And I was born prematurely. I was two pounds, one ounce. I was in an incubator for six months. And so when I tried to do anything, my mother would always say, oh, you can't do that. You're too weak. You can't do that. You're too weak. And I heard Mm -hmm. it for most of my childhood. And so it was ingrained in me that, you know, I could accept my other character defects, but I can't let you know that I'm stupid or weak. And so I became competitive and argumentative and had to have the last word and it was so deep within me and I guess you know I hear you see when you see and you hear when you hear and it was time for me time for me to let go of those character defects at that moment so you finally found a way to do that and be totally honest with the people in the room about the slip knowing knowing that it would be okay there must have been a lot of fear around that though huh a lot of fear, a lot of ego, because for quite a while until somebody said quit doing it, I, I would have to say, well, I really haven't had a drink since 94, but I took these two Vicodins, so I'm really, you know, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> so there was a lot of ego. I had to keep explaining that. And then until somebody said, no, you're a newcomer, your sobriety date's 11-7, and you don't need to tell the other part unless you're telling your story. <laughs> Three and a half years in, you're a newcomer again, with the advantage of already having been in, having done a lot of work, just a matter of resetting the date. So yes. how did you respond to that then? You, you came back in, you were considered a newcomer. It was a humbling experience, I'm sure. What were the first steps that you took at that point? Did you feel like you had to redo a whole lot of stuff or or did you just carry on from that point forward? No, I had to do, I had to look at that. You know, I had a sponsor that said, said, ask me what you asked me. And that was, why do you feel that even with how much you loved AA and that you were still doing that, you know, being argumentative Uh and competitive, where was that base? So I had to start over again with some of my, some of my steps and really, really get it from my head to my heart. And uh, and that's what I did. And, and every level that I've reached in Alcoholics Anonymous has brought me to a new awareness of, of me and what I need to do after that. And if that. you're open enough to it, then you'll also get that kind of direction from the people around you. Because I think if I wait till I'm self-directed to do most things, either I won't do them or I'll resist doing them. But if people around me are suggesting it, I'm probably more apt more apt to do right. it. 
You said that you, you grew up after being a premature baby and your your mother wouldn't let you do things because she felt that you were too weak or that sort mm-hmm. of thing. At, at what point did you stop believing that? <laughs> when I changed my sobriety date, I think. <laughs> really? Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Now, you know, it talks about in the big book, uh, your Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I joke a little bit and said mm-hmm. I was more like uh, Sybil <laughs> with six tapers. Sybil, okay. But ever since I was a child, I really did have multiple identities that kept me mm-hmm. safe. Uh, I had very, very confident one that, you know, I could, uh, I did very well in school. I did very well at work. Uh, it was it was in connection with having relationships with myself, others, and my creator that I had a, I had a deep problem mm-hmm. with, and so um, you know I had all these other qualities, but for some reason I I just couldn't grasp that, and so when I finally had to change my sobriety and I looked at it, I realized that. I was still thinking I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Even though I was a vice president at Mm -hmm. a bank, even though I had um, done a lot of things professionally, uh, there was that inner thing, that interaction with people that still lacked. That must have been really tough for the three and a half years that you were in AA sitting in rooms and knowing that you had to keep that up when maybe some people around you seemed to be sharing at a level that was quite a bit deeper than what you were able to share, huh? Well, honestly, because I have these different aspects of who I am, I really don't believe I knew about it until it got so overpowering to me. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, I can't let anybody know that I'm having these problems because they'll think I'm stupid or weak. I think it was so inside me. It had never been brought, even with all the psychiatrists I had. I mean, that wasn't ever, ever talked about. Either was alcohol. It was my childhood and the things that happened to me as a child. And and so... It wasn't apparent to me outwardly, uh, but people did say, man, you're competitive, <laughs> or or I really did have to have the last word. I even make up percentages. I would say, well, 60% of the people would, and, you know, they go, wow, that's good. I go, well, I, you know, in my head, I go, well, I made it up, but it worked. <laughs> it worked. It got them believing you, whatever it was you were telling them at that point. Yeah, they were very strong. So all that came back after the three and a half years, and that was your turning point to the new you, even though you'd already had three and a half years uh, sober. At what age did you first encounter alcohol? Was there alcohol in your home? Were your parents drinkers? Well, my dad, he went to the store when I was four years old for cigarettes and never came back. From what I understand, I never saw him again. But from what I understand, he was a full-blown alcoholic and a compulsive Mm -hmm. gambler. And then my mother, because we had moved from Memphis where I was born, you know, in those days, she was uneducated, had no job, and we were in the project, in mm-hmm. the projects, and she married a totally full-blown alcoholic, abusive alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, my uncles apparently were alcoholic. My mother's father was an alcoholic. My grandfather had never met him, and my, my grandmother divorced him in 1945, never, never remarried. So uh, a lot of alcoholism, but I never saw it. Or I denied it. I just saw the meanness. I don't remember bottles of alcohol. I don't remember any. I, he was a bartender. So he would leave for work at three. I would come home, never see him. And then he would sleep till 10. I would go to school. So I really never, all I kept hearing certain things like, oh, he's fallen off the wagon. He's on the wagon. He's off the wagon. I had no idea what that meant. 
I really did not know that he was even, I just thought he was mean. Uh (laughs) So you never really connected his meanness with a cause of that meanness. No. Looking back, do you recall times that he was mean to you, that you're absolutely sure he was totally drunk? No. And, and, you know, I never knew I was an alcoholic. Now, like I said, I, I'm, I'm educated. Uh, I read hundreds. I love research. Hundreds of books, uh, self-help books. And I never knew I was an alcoholic to that mm-hmm. day when I went, oh, my God, I'm an alcoholic. Even with all the psychiatrists, even with the, all the drunkenness, even my life, which was totally. I really believed on a core level that I drank because my life was bad. I had no idea my life was bad because I drank. I had no idea. Nobody told That's me. That's so astounding that you could go to 30 psychiatrists and not one of them would face you down in a way that would get to you. They never did. And maybe they did. Maybe they did. But I, you know, I was there for my husband or my stepdad or this or that. Or they, you know, it was never about alcohol. It just never uh-huh. was. Did they medicate you? Did they give you meds along the way? Nope. So you have this mean stepfather, your mother who doesn't want you to do anything because you're too weak. So when do you first find alcohol and what kind of relief did it give you when you first started drinking? I was 19 and I had my first date with a a guy that my sister had introduced me to. I did not know he was a full-blown alcoholic. He was 24. I was 19. Mm -hmm. And he took me to a bar for our first date to see his belly dancer girlfriend, ex-belly dancer girlfriend dance. (laughs) Oh, well, what the heck, I thought. The minute I walked into that room, I loved the bars. I loved, it was my um, wonderful world of the color, that Disneyland where I I loved the music and the laughter. I'm an extrovert to the hilt. (laughs) And and I loved it. But when he gave me that Mm -hmm. drink, I didn't have to cross an invisible line. I loved it from that moment. I loved the way it tasted. I loved the way it made me feel I, I you know I just instantly it became my constant companion from that point on even through all my marriages I had several several marriages mm-hmm. that's it just was part of my life and I hung around with people it was just part of our lives everybody you I knew started drank. at 19 that's about the same I started right around 18 but it seems like I missed all of what was going on in high school and junior high when it came to especially marijuana and and booze but Boy, the minute I hit 18 and was able to decide that I liked the taste of beer and what it did to me, you know, it was Katie bar the door. So you started drinking at 19 and how did it progress or did it become full blown quickly or or was it a slow progression? Uh, it was pretty full-blown. I mean, I ended up marrying that man. <laughs> yeah, go figure. And uh, uh-huh. his mother and father were alcoholics. So we would go to their house for Sunday dinner. See, there was never any booze in our house. I, You know, they were never home. But we would mm-hmm. go there, and every Sunday, they would drink. That's what they did. At dinner, they mm-hmm. drank. And because of what I realized I had made a mistake, I felt like I was drinking just to escape what I had done that I had married him and married into this Mm -hmm. family. And it really, I didn't want to admit, you know, that I had made this big mistake. So I just drank with him to forget that I was married to him and that family. Do you think it's unusual that that, uh, alcoholics marry other alcoholics and sometimes non-alcoholics marry alcoholics to try and straighten them out? Oh, I think it's absolutely the normal thing. (laughs) I think that's what happens all the time. Absolutely. So how long did that marriage last? That marriage lasted five years. I had two children. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, yeah. It was, uh, I was a hanger on. I don't want to be weak. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm going to stick this out. I had my son in 73, had my daughter in 75, and by the end of 75, I, I had divorced him. He was full-blown. We lived in the bars. You know, six months after my son was born, I was right back into those bars. You know, I held my son in my arms when he was born, and I looked at him and I said, I make a vow to you. I swear to you, you will never come from a home like I came from. And I meant it. I meant every word of it. But six months after he was born, I was right back into those bars. And uh, I figured, well, my husband was in different bars, that he was in the dark, dreary bars. I was in the live dancing bars. Mm -hmm. And and it was just a constant thing. I And I thought, well, if I have a daughter, I'll change. If I have a daughter, that'll make me different. Mm -hmm. And had my daughter, and it was no different. It was so the same. So you were expecting these outside things to change you, change the inside. Absolutely. So what was raising those children like, being an alcoholic? It was tough. I really loved them, and uh, but my my husband at the time was always gone. Uh, of mm -hmm. course, then I was always gone, too. Oh, it was such a hard situation. His parents were alcoholics. They were trying to get the kids uh, uh -huh. when we got divorced. I, it was just... It was horrible. I loved them. You know, I tried uh -huh. to tried to be with them. I took care of them most of the time. He never came to see them unless he had another woman with him, you know. Um, so I took care of them the best I could, but I was literally tired a lot, drunk a lot, had a lot of mm -hmm. people over a lot. It was mm -hmm. tough. And, and I'll tell you, when I was young, I had this idea that there was a power greater than myself. I didn't describe it. I didn't mm -hmm. name it. I uh, we never went to church, so I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And when it got too too horrible for me, I would go out and lay in the grass and just look up at the sky and just say, you know, I got I got I got peace. I got peace. And so that carried me through a lot of things. It hmm. really did until about five years before I got sober. But uh, I kept having this thing that it's going to get better. It's going to get better. I just know it's going to get better. And yeah. and it helped through that. But like I said, I really did have several personalities, not medical, but I just had this one strong thing. I'm not going to be weak. And this other thing is that uh, I'm a piece of garbage. And I had this yeah. and I had this guilt. That's why I started seeing psychiatrists at 19 at 19, by the way. Same so time. the it's going to get better turned out to be the great lie that you were telling yourself and trying to believe with all your heart, I guess, huh? Yeah, and then coming home and looking in the mirror and going, "What? what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And I literally would go to psychiatrists and they'd say, well, it's your stepdad. What happened to you as a kid? I had a lot of things happen to me when I was and a kid. And it still never occurred to you that it was alcohol. Never. There was never a connection. Okay, no. so, you get, so you're married, you get divorced by what, 25, 26? 25, yeah, almost okay. 26. And so yeah. you, you were raising the children alone? I was. Uh -huh. And then uh, I was playing softball for a VFW Women's League and drinking every Sunday mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, bringing my kids with me. They were sitting on the bar floor while, mm -hmm. while we drank, all of us. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I met a man in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought the first man I married because I thought he had a good family. It turned out it was a horrible, yeah. it was a horrible family. I married the second mm -hmm. guy because he looked like Don Johnson. That's <laughs> okay. a true story. It was time of Miami Vice and he walked in and I went, "Oh my gosh, I don't need a family. I need him. It's Don Johnson." <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I married him. Unfortunately, he was my stepdad all over again, and he oh, treated geez. my kids just like my stepdad treated us. So that marriage only lasted two that years. That must have been rough. To see yeah. your kids treated the way you had been treated? 
Exactly. And me too. I mean, he choked me one time so hard his fingerprints were in my neck and my kids were watching it and they were screaming, no. But I lasted two years, see? I I, I don't know how I lasted two years. That's but. traumatic. So you divorced, you divorced him at that point. Divorced him. You still got yep. the kids. Still You're have what, the kids. 27, 28 years old already. You've been married twice. Going to yeah. the bars still all the time. Yes, and then okay. uh, and then my kids went to go live with their father uh, because I was working eighty eight hours a week. Oh, it's such a long story, but uh, yeah, they went to go live with their okay. father, and uh, I I was so afraid of being alone, afraid of not being loved, afraid you know. So I was I worked at a bank during the day. I was a cocktail waitress as at a disco at night and a and a bartender on uh-huh. Saturday. And I was working 80 hours. So you were working that to keep from having to do the other things and face all the demons that were mounting up inside. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a runner. Uh That's all I know how to do, either through booze, men, physically, mentally. I'm a runner. Well, I don't think that's unusual for alcoholics. It's the way way in which we choose to run. I've certainly known people over the years who found ways to run away while they remained in the relationship run away without going anywhere. They just run away into their own mayhem or whatever's going on within their minds. So right. so you're, you're still drinking. Mm-hmm. You're not even 30 yet, I guess, huh, at that point? Not even 30 so yet. So in the interest of time, why don't you fast forward us from that point until the downfall in 94? Well, I had had a fiancé and another husband, by the way, and then I moved from Cleveland to Tucson, brought my daughter with uh-huh. me. And I had married the guy from Tucson. That's a long story. But I came with another man. If I go to Tucson, my life's going to get better. And, uh, you know, it wasn't. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he was a child of an alcoholic. And he was also very abusive. And so my daughter ended up going back to Cleveland. I worked for a while, like I said, very successful at Mm -hmm. banking. Kept rising in the ladder. And then my downfall was that I was now living in a basement apartment, divorced three times, um, couldn't drive anymore, going to the hospital once a month because of severe panic attacks. I was working for this bank. I was a vice president. I had to get this big loan. And a young girl from the bank I had never met went with me. I was in construction lending. She was in mortgage Mm -hmm. loans. And the president of the bank said, go down and get this loan. And so I, uh, I did. But on my lunch hour, I was... I was drinking and I asked her if she wanted to drink and she said, no, I don't drink. And I said, do you think I drink too much? She goes, I don't know. I don't know you. And she, and she said, but I have a friend and he goes to a, he goes to a place called Alcoholics Anonymous at 445 on Ina Road. And he hasn't drank in 18 years. I said, why? <laughs> and, uh, and then I forgot about that. that was in 1993. And then I got the psychiatrist and for eight months, uh, she sent me to AA meetings once a week, once a week, because she was the only one that said, I, I need you to go. If you want me to treat you, I need you to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And and I so did. while you were sitting in those rooms, were you still in a huge amount of denial? Yes, because I heard uh, I went to prison, I had DUIs, I lost this. I, see, I was so, because I had a car, I worked for a bank. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I was successful. Now I had, my kids were 2,400 miles away. I'd been divorced three times. I was living in a basement apartment. I didn't get it until that moment. 
eight months later in 94 when I came home. And then the next day I walked into work and I was crying and I was sobbing after I had laid down on that floor. And I and that girl's voice came to my head and said, there's a meeting at 445 on Iron Road and he hasn't drank in 18 years. I walked into my boss's office and I said, Fred, I think I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to an AA meeting. He goes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I went to that meeting and I sat down and I was crying and it was as if that guy I had as a little girl put his hand on my shoulder and said, it's time. And I went, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. And I was jaded. Yeah. And you, and you never know when or where those guardian angels are going to come from. Were you drinking on the job or were you a functional alcoholic when it came to work? I drink on my lunch hours. Uh-huh. Drink at night, but not, on. well, I shouldn't say, at one of the banks I was drinking on the job. But uh, but I drink on my lunch hour, drink after a happy hours. Did you ever get confronted with it? Did the your employers ever say anything about it? No. So as long as you were producing, you could do what you wanted to do? Yeah, and I was producing. You know, and yet everybody knew I had a drinking problem. Yeah. It was very strange. Yeah. But I had the ability to function and to work and to get raises. and. Yeah, so the system becomes the enabler, doesn't it? Yes, Yes. Okay, so you're sitting in your first meetings. Uh, the very first meetings you were going to before this turnaround, you were in denial, denial all the time. Mm -hmm. Did you start to run out of reasons why AA wouldn't work for you? Or did you still have plenty to go by the time you finally came around? I still had plenty. To, I mean, every once in a while I go, well... Well, that sounds familiar, but I was it was stuck in my head. I've never had a DUI, never been to jail. I never lived on the streets. I, it just was stuck in my head that, no, I'm not an alcoholic. And I was drinking with a friend one time. Mm -hmm. and I was drinking that whole time, that whole eight yeah. months. And I said, do you think I drink too much? He goes, no, your life sucks. I go, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> so people were enabling me. Did any of the folks who were in those early meetings, did any of them try and pull you aside? Were, were there any caring women around who said, this poor gal needs some help. Uh, maybe I ought to talk to her. Did you have any of that? No, because I would go late and leave early. Okay. Yeah, it was just I was going to get that check mark from my psychiatrist, you know. So you you were doing one meeting a week like that then, huh? One meeting a week for eight months. And and I will tell you, my daughter was back with me for a short while then, and she was in three drug rehabs that I put her in. They talked about alcoholism. They talked about the disease, and I would be either hungover or drunk, and I would sit there going, my poor daughter. I don't know why I didn't know. Maybe at a gut level, but I remember looking in the mirror going, what happened to my life? With a half a gallon of vodka on my lap. What happened to my life? And not knowing. And just not knowing. And nobody there really pointed out to you. If they were there, you wouldn't have believed them anyway, right? No. No, because I was functioning. I worked at a bank and I had a car. <laughs> yeah, that makes it tough. Yeah, it was tough. Especially when you got no accountability in the meantime, right? right. Except your work. Right. It, my, my family, they knew I drank. Mm -hmm. They knew what happened to me. They knew all the stuff mm -hmm. that I went through. That's why I left. That's why I got married to the guy from Tucson. Because I couldn't stand the way they were looking at me. And why are you doing this? If I knew, I would tell you. I don't know. And you know what it came up with? Because I believed in that higher power that I call life energy beyond my understanding. Mm -hmm. That I was just no darn good. That somehow I was born. And, and that's when I lost all faith in anything. That I must be just no darn good. Mm. Yeah, that's what I thought. That can be a bottom in and of itself, can't it? Absolutely. That's where it is. I'm just no darn good. So did you hit that bottom with that belief? Or did you have further down to go? Uh, no, I had further down to go. <laughs> did you? Okay. Uh, yeah. Once, I, once you, at least for me, once I 
realize that I was just no darn good, you begin to live your life like you're no darn good. But my other personality did. It's strange to me. Well, a lot of people who go to AA and resist it will attempt other ways to try and stop on their own just to try and convince themselves that they're not really alcoholics if they can stop for any length of time. Did you, even after going to those AA meetings, did you say to yourself, I can do this on my own or I don't need AA, let me do it on my own? Uh, Yeah, a couple times I did. Like one time I started drinking O'Doul's and that only lasted for a while. I found myself playing golf one day because I had stopped for a couple days and the guy I was with went off into the bushes and he had a beer sitting there and I remember just drinking it down and looking, where is he, where is he, so he doesn't see Mm. me and put it down. And and I thought, oh, my God, what's wrong with you, Jackie? What's wrong? Mm-hmm. I, denial. Denial. Unbelievably in me. Yeah, it's hard to sustain that frame of mind without an awful lot of denial, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to The Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. So after eight months of one a week AA for you, what changed? Uh, What changed was I got on the floor and begged God to change me. Why that day? Why that day? Why not another? I don't know. Uh I don't know. I think I was just so tired. I was just so broken. And I think that, you know, my life energy beyond my understanding said it's time because when i walked into alcoholics anonymous that morning and i was crying and they i I literally felt something on my shoulder and said it's time and i went oh my god i'm an alcoholic all of a sudden i really knew who i was and all of a sudden everything everybody said made sense and i loved it yeah i had hope again so that was a spiritual awakening in us in every sense of the word absolutely So did you move forward then in getting a sponsor and working the steps and doing all the other things that we're told to do early on? I did. Yeah. I did. I, I, you know, when she first told me, I believe I did steps one, two, and three when I laid down on the floor and asked God to change me. Yeah. I didn't know it then, but I had fully surrendered. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, uh, the fourth step, I told her, gosh, I've been to 31 psychiatrists. (laughs) I've told my story over. She goes, it's not your story, Jackie. (laughs) It's coming to terms with your resentments and your fears and, and the sexual behavior, which is just selfish behavior. Right. That's what the fourth step is about. And I got to do that and then find my character defects, except the ones I pushed aside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I loved AA, and I've loved it ever since. Mm-hmm. I go to nine meetings a week. Mm. I have lots of sponsees. I've been GSR. I've gone through a lot of stuff in my sobriety, grief, great grief Mm -hmm. and and great pain, but I've never lost the joy of being sober ever since that moment when I said, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. I was transformed. And each time I did the steps, if I did, when I did the fourth step, I was changed. And then when I did the ninth step, I was transformed. And then when I redid my sobriety date, I was transformed. I, I always talk about 
these things in our life that in a split second it will be changed forever. Right. Whether it's the bad thing when I drank mm-hmm. or or the wonderful things that suddenly you become aware of. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of spiritual awakenings. A lot. Those kind of awakenings, they sometimes come in clumps, don't they? Yes. Like one right after another, and then sometimes there's a little bit of a, well, a period of time between them, and you're wondering where the heck did they go? Did, have you ever had? Have you ever faced that in your sobriety? Uh, short times. You know, uh, I did get married again. Uh-huh. I married a man when I moved to California. He had 27 years of sobriety, uh-huh. and uh, it was the first time I could truly have a a true partnership with a with a man. Oh, okay. He uh he passed away after 18 years of marriage and mm, sorry. And uh he yeah, he he died in my arms in my sister's 50th wedding anniversary party in Cleveland and you know, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I was lost. All the things that I had gone through, I I felt lost. I didn't know what to do. Mm. How long were you sober at this point? Uh 18 years. And this was the husband who had 27 years of sobriety. Yeah. When he passed away at 46 years of sobriety. Wow. So you got married to him when you were, how long were you sober at that time? Four months. My second time. Yeah. I got it. He actually was in my home group Mm -hmm. uh, in Tucson, but he really lived in, in California in Maui. (laughs) <laughs> I have an exciting, exciting life. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he would go to Tucson. I met him there. And for three years, he was just part of the people we hung around with. But he was gone a lot because he lived here in Maui. Yeah. And so uh, I didn't even think about it. And then and then uh, when I had four months, he came back to Tucson and, and uh, asked one of his sponsees, is Jackie dating anyone? And he said no. And we had our date. And six weeks later, we were married on the beaches of Maui. <laughs> There you go. I guess that's the way to do things, isn't it? Well, we were older and and wiser, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and we had done the steps, and and it was a gift from God. It was definitely a gift from God. And it was a marriage that lasted eighteen years. Yeah, that's really amazing. He he dies sober with forty six years, which is an absolute amazing thing to have happen. Yeah, but it sounds like it was also a tough time for you. It was, yeah. But then I, you know, you talk about spiritual awakenings. Uh-huh. Is what happened was uh, because it happened in Cleveland. I, my friend flew to Cleveland just so I wouldn't have to fly home by myself. Mm-hmm. But we had driven cross country to the international convention and then to Cleveland. And mm-hmm. one of his sponsees drove, uh, flew to Cleveland and drove our car all the way back. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And I was having panic attacks. I couldn't drive to my 615 meeting without pulling over constantly. Mm-hmm. I never thought of drinking. I thought of maybe Valium. Oh, they don't even do Valium anymore. Out of van. But I didn't even do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I got to the meeting at 615 in the morning after I got home. And when I walked outside, all the smokers dropped all their cigarettes, went in a line, and each one hugged me. And cried with me. And then I walked in the meeting and, and uh, everybody stood up. Because he had, my husband had started that meeting. Yeah. And they all lined up and every one of them hugged me and cried with me. And when I got to that last one, I had an, a, a complete spiritual awakening. And I'm going to cry. <laughs> what I realized was um, everything changes, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we get older and we get sick and we have grief and we have joy. But the only thing that has never changed for me since that day, I said, oh, my God, I'm an alcoholic. was Alcoholics Anonymous. Hmm. The steps don't change and the principles don't change and Mm -hmm. the concept and the fellowship, if you're deep within it, doesn't change. And I still grieved, but I was able to walk through it, you know, because of that. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. I've I've experienced some of the same things with losses in my life, my parents and, and some very, very close friends. 
Did you ever, when you were you were newer in sobriety or over the years, did you ever wonder, will I be able to make it through some of these catastrophic things without drinking? Yeah, when I was new, there were two meetings I went to. One was an Alcathon because my first sobriety date was 11 7 uh-huh. And I went to a Christmas Alcathon and a young man got up to the podium and said, I really need to be here. Uh, three months ago, my wife and, and daughter were killed in a car accident with a, with a drunk driver and I need to be here. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wouldn't be here. How could you do that? Mm. I, I don't know how you could do that. Mm-hmm. And then a few months later, uh, we had a doctor in one of our meetings and uh, loved this man. And he came and he said, uh, well, I've been told I only have a few months to live. Mm-hmm. And I, I could go to a top of a mountain and take my vodka with me and drink and nobody would blame me. And I go, well, of course not. I would drink if I had that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine. My mother, my mother passed away in, in, in sobriety. I never thought I could go through that. And I also was, was diagnosed with cancer the 1st of February. Mm. And I always thought if, if somebody told me I had cancer, there was no way. But you know what? I was walking in my living room because he called me on the phone and walking in the living room. And I literally heard, I don't know if it was my husband's voice or I thought it was, Mm. but it said, Jackie, stay in the day, Mm -hmm. do the next indicated thing and be a maximum service to the people around you. Mm. And, you know, all these things, you know, that I thought I could never go through. That's the concept to go through. That's a, that's a beautiful story, especially the fact that you were able to get through all those things without drinking. Sometimes I think in in the kind of thinking that I had like that when I was newer in sobriety, there was a part of me that still wanted to drink again, that knew that if tragedy happened, I probably could drink again. So it was almost kind of a perverse way of wishing to be able to drink again. Mm -hmm. But once I got a little bit of maturity in the program under me, that changed because I got to sit in meetings with people who were going through all of these things and they were staying sober. They were staying sober no matter what, no matter what happened. And after deaths, I go to meetings. Before I go to funerals, I go to meetings. It's just it's just insurance against something that I know is not gonna happen, but anyway, it's where I need to be with my people. Sounds like, sounds like that's kind of that way for you too. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I've been given a great gift, I think. I don't know why my mother had to live such a yeah. tragic life and, and other people I see, I don't know, but I, I truly know how blessed I am. I can't even imagine not staying here, not being here. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to be that woman I was. There's a Reba McIntyre song. She says, I like who I am today. And I go, wow, <laughs> me too. <laughs> and that's a miracle. <laughs> that is a miracle. It is a miracle. You've spent the better part of 23 years well, let's say, with the exception, that's got to be weird to be able to not be able to say the original. Because I've known people who've said, I've been sober 25 years with the exception of the two days in year 21. <laughs> and it always sounds kind of weird. Yeah. So whenever anybody does what you've done and actually resets it. But I'm going to ask during your sobriety, however you want to look at it, what kind of challenges have you faced within the program? Uh, And by that, I mean things like sponsoring people who end up either dying or going out when you were giving them every ounce of what you had. I did. I actually had a a sponsee, beautiful woman, beautiful young woman, and uh, had three children that were taken Mm. away from her. And she was dynamic. She was funny. And when she walked in a room, everybody, she just Mm -hmm. lit up the room. And yet she could not stay sober. And I talked to her. She came to watch me speak uh, one night uh, 
and and that was a Saturday mm-hmm. night. Sunday, I talked to her, and she was crying and saying, "I I can't stand it. I don't have my kids." And I kept saying, "One day at a time. It's going to be okay. You got to stay sober." And you know, and she went home. She hung herself at work the next day. And 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 it's like, I, I yeah, it's unbelievable. There's uh, people I haven't sponsored that has done that. There was somebody named John, and uh, I called him Happy John. I said, "You're like me, Happy Jackie, Happy John." <laughs> And uh, and everybody just loved him, and he did the same thing. He was uh, worked the program, lots of sponsees, and then he was diagnosed with cancer, and he also hung himself. And uh, and I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it because she could not stay sober at all, but he was sober. And uh, you know, so yeah, confusing. Yeah, it is, especially since we're spending days and weeks and and years in a program that gives us all the tools we need. Sometimes we're kind of pulled to the edge against against our will. Yes. I've had it occur a number of times where people who I was close to committed, completed suicide, so to speak. And I think it's okay to feel grief about it. I think it's okay to feel everything except personal responsibility for it. And, uh, you know, I didn't right. pull the trigger on that pistol. I didn't, I didn't hang the rope up. Right. And that almost sounds harsh and hard, right. but in reality, I think it's the only way that we can get through it and realize that we've done what we can, and you know, there's not not much more. So you you, you mentioned that your daughter uh, is she in rec- currently in recovery too? No, she actually uh, she's bipolar, and uh, so she had a lot of medical things, and I think she covered up her bipolar. By drinking, and she was just unruly. And she, I mean, she had me as a mother, yeah. an alcoholic mother. Her fa- her father, died uh, esophageal uh. bleeding. They found him four days later. You know, so she had two alcoholic parents. Uh, she was living with me, then him, then me, then him. And uh, mm-hmm. as far as I know, she doesn't even like alcohol. But uh, she she takes medication for bipolar. And she was. It was so hard. It was very difficult with her growing up. And she was in and out of mental hospitals and, and juvie and all these different things. And like I said, that's why she lived with him and then me and then him with me, you know. it's. Uh, mm-hmm. But she's been married 14 mm-hmm. years. And believe it or not, she's a corrections officer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know that's funny, but, uh, you know, she has a great life. She's doing well. She has her, her moments, but, you know, she used to look at me and say, I hate you. I hate you. Uh, and and today she goes, Ma, you're the only one that ever showed me she really mm. loved me. And, and we're just so very close. So that's been a healing thing. And my son, he's six six and. Mm-hmm. And he's 48, and uh, he's never really, he doesn't want to even talk about it. He has, he knows his father mm-hmm. was an alcoholic because right. he lived with him. Uh, but me, he just can't believe it. He calls me every other day and calls mm-hmm. me Mama. Hi, Ma-. He's got this deep voice. Hi, Mama. Love you, Mama. <laughs> but, you know, they had a tough childhood. They had a tough childhood. Yeah. Does he have uh, any kind of issues with alcohol that you know of? I don't know, really. You know, he left when he was nine years old, and he's 48. And... Uh, uh, I see him once a year, sometimes uh-huh. twice a year. If he comes out here, I go out there. Uh, he likes to drink beer, and uh, he likes. He says I'm a connoisseur of beer. Mm-hmm. I think he might drink too much, but uh, I'm not around him enough to diagnose him with that. He's got anger issues, but I don't know. I don't know. It's it's tough to not know. 
But somewhere along the way, I had to say to myself, with my 32-year-old son and my uh, 29-year-old son and my daughter in the middle of those two, they're going to do what they're going to do. And the time at which I might have been able to make a difference has kind of come and gone. But none of them are showing any kind of outward signs of uh, alcoholism or drug addiction, though I know that both, both of my sons drink. Uh, and I, I believe grass may be involved with my older son. And right. the, the thing I have to be careful about is projecting the fact that I'm an alcoholic and drug addict re- in recovery on you know my progeny, so to speak. I've done that. Have you? Oh yeah. Yeah. How did that work out? Um, well, you know, I, I I would tell him you're drinking too much. You know, he's never been arrested. He's never had a DUI. He's never lost a job. He's been with his job over 20 years. And but yeah, sometimes I'll go. Don't you think you're drinking too much? You know, but, yeah. Um, but he's he's a really good man. But I had I have done it. And, and you talk about the guilt. I had horrible guilt, and I think a lot of my daughter's problems were because I did a lot of things out of guilt. Uh, you know, I was yeah. a terrible mother, so I'm gonna. You know, Ma, I didn't pay my electric. Okay, here's money for your electric. Mom, I crashed my yeah. car. I need money. Okay, here's my. And I enabled her for a long time out of guilt. But then when I turned it around and said, I can't do this anymore. You're a grown woman. Boy, she was mad at me for a while. But she said, you're the only one that taught me anything, Ma. So, but I had many years of doing everything out of guilt. Your ninth step amends with your daughter must have been pretty interesting. It was very interesting. Um, Part of it was, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And over the years, we've, we've started to talk in more detail about it. That's good. We talk a lot more, you know, so it's been a Uh long, a long process. Again, my son never acknowledges that I was an alcoholic. He doesn't believe I was an alcoholic. He wasn't around. Uh, You know, I'm his mother and Mm -hmm. he loves me and he goes, I I never saw it, which is true. He never did see it except when he was little. Mm -hmm. And then maybe he has. Maybe that's where the anger issues. Maybe he's like his mom. <laughs> that's a strong denial. I don't know. Yeah. You know, could be. The apples don't fall that far from the tree, do they? That's right. No, my daughter's a lot like me. She really is a lot. Although I'm not bipolar, but, well, I was there for a while, I guess. <laughs> I like to believe that each generation just gets just a little bit better. I know it was that way for me. I used to be beaten as a child by my father, and my mother was completely emotionally void from from our lives in a lot of ways. And not that I overdid it with my kids, but somewhere along the way, I sat them down when they were old enough to understand what I was talking about and told them about my alcoholism and my drug addiction in, in terms that they could understand. And I think it made a difference. I hope it made a difference. But at least I don't find myself at this point saying, God, I wish I had said something. Right. So you got through all of that, and here you are, happy Jackie, yeah. in the world of AA. You're you're a, a speaker. What do you love most about AA? I love the fact that I can go, you know, you're out in the world, and sometimes it's really ugly. Mm-hmm. And then you come into a room and see the transformation of people, people getting along that shouldn't get along. Uh, but I get so moved by the stories, and I'm... I'm so emotional. I cry. I mean, it sounds silly, but sometimes, in fact, I shared that this morning at the morning meeting. Sometimes I feel like my heart is going to burst mm-hmm. at at the fact that there are miracles. There are good things. There are transformations. There are people who help other people. You know, I love the stories. Uh, 
I, 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 like I said, I go to nine meetings a week and I've been in the program. I started 27 years ago. So I've never been bored with a meeting mm-hmm. ever. Uh, I've never not wanted to go to a meeting. Uh, I maybe have been tired and thought, oh, I'm a little tired, but I always go because I go, oh, I'm going to miss the stories. I'm going to miss the people. Mm-hmm. You know, all my life, I had this, not all my life, until I came into the program, I I had this thing where I would tell people, I'm, I just don't feel connected. And they said, what are you kidding me? You have people around you all the time. You're in every <laughs> single thing. I, and I go, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I feel like I, I'm not connected. I feel like there's no purpose, even though I, I'm I'm a good banker. I'm, I could yeah. not get a relationship, even with my children. Mm-hmm. And uh, and today I feel connected. Today I know yeah. that Alcoholics Anonymous has really shown me that we are all. That's what I believe spirituality is: our yeah. awareness of knowing we're all connected, and that when I hurt you, I hurt me, and that I, I just love it. <laughs> So the God in me talks to the God in you. Yeah. And then we don't drink. Yeah. And we get along. One of the things I've started to realize, Jackie, over the years about AA meetings in general, especially through all of the divisiveness and all the crap that's going on out there, is how fortunate we are to be in an insulated environment where we don't, purposefully, we don't introduce any of those divisive things. There's so much of it that goes on. There's some days I, my fantasy was, uh, wouldn't it be great to be able to live in AA 23 hours a day and go out to life for an hour, you know? Okay, friends, I'm going out to life. I'll be back in an hour, you know, because there's just something about it. And I don't know if you've ever, this happened to you, but, uh, over the years, there've been different situations that have occurred that people who I love just absolutely and unconditionally, I see outside of meetings and doing some things that are reprehensible or abhorrent or just nasty. And, 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 and then they're coming back in the meetings and being all lovey dovey. That is a terrifically hard thing to reconcile, isn't it? It is. And you know, my husband helped me with that. My, my last husband. Yeah. And he was so wise. He taught me so very much, but, uh, yeah, he was a great man. But, um, you know, I would say, gosh, I can't believe it. He's got all this sobriety and, and look what he's doing. And he, and he would say, Jackie, we're all human. You know, we are all human and we're flawed and we're broken. But look at the things that he does do or she does do. And and it outweighs all those other. We have character defects. And me, of all people, should know that. (laughs) It's hard for me to reconcile. And yet I can understand it now. Mm -hmm. I can understand that, yes, we are flawed. And there are people who, you know, that don't love it as much as me, I guess. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah. It's just, uh, but I notice all the people who do, their transformations. Just as much as I recognize that, too, I have to just keep in mind that these are people who have the same diseases I have, and it's a disease of the mind, body, and soul, and that on any given day, any of us can act a certain way that is not very nice or whatever. But on the flip side of that, I'm convinced that the goodness within AA exponentially outweighs all the bad stuff that's going on. A little bit of AA is outweighing a lot of the badness out there. Absolutely. Sounds like your your sponsees are pretty fortunate women to have a sponsor like you. Uh, well, I'm the fortunate one. <laughs> you know, they do way more for me than I could ever do for them. And, you know, the ability to really know in your soul you're of purpose and of value and that everything that 
you thought was so horrible in your life has become something that you can help somebody else. I mean, when I go, oh, I've done that, Mm -hmm. and oh, listen to this story, it's like, wow, all those things that I didn't want to tell you about myself and all those things buried inside me that hurt so badly that I can help another person. It's just... I don't know. It's just, it's, well, like I said, I keep saying it. It's transformed me. So I'm the, I'm the blessed one for sure. Yeah. And it is, it's transformational. And I found that most of the men that I've sponsored for many, many years, um, we've become more than just sponsor, sponsee. We become close friends. That's always a good feeling, especially when you start to see sponsees and grand sponsees and great grand sponsees out there doing some really good work. And knowing that the man that you sponsored was the was the beginning of that, that's that's also a very a very good thing. So you mentioned to me earlier about Libu. Life energy beyond understanding. How has your conception of a higher power changed within your AA program? Do you find it's different today than it was ten years ago or fifteen years ago? Oh, my! It has changed drastically from the time I was a child all the way uh, when I finally. Uh, got out and played with people and they were going to Sunday school. I wanted to go to Sunday school with them. And I love Sunday school and I love church. And I was taught at vacation Bible school when I was a teenager and, mm-hmm. and I just loved it. But then I lost it with every drink that took it away and every experience with me, it took it away. And like I said, five years before, before I got sober, I, uh, I threw God away. I said, no, I went to, by the way, I went to seven different churches. <laughs> I, I I went to the Luther church because it was structured. And, you know, I went to the Methodist church because it was singing. But, but when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, what I realized is I read that in, in the grapevine and I went, that's so encompassing life energy beyond understanding, because there's a life energy when I walk into AA that's so profound and you can prove it because you can see the stories walking in front of you that that's fit me that you know and I knew when I was a child whoever I was talking to or whatever I was talking to I didn't name it I didn't describe it so here I was talking to an energy all the time yeah so it comes full (laughs) circle doesn't it it does oh it has come full circle I've really really enjoyed our conversation today and the time always seems to fly by so quickly we've been talking for about an hour now it seems like just a minute yes that's the way it is I think when two alcoholics of the same mind, let's say, and you and I both understand the importance of sobriety and the importance of meetings and the importance of the spiritual awakening and all those other things. Every now and then I'll run into people who don't feel that way. And I have to remember, okay, just give them time, give them time. And it's usually what it takes. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would say or that you, uh, you'd like to leave with the listeners? Well, there's there's actually two things. Uh, one, my husband and I song was a song by Colin Ray, and it was called uh-huh. The Gift. And the line I remember is, you gave your love away. I'm grateful every day. Thank you for mm-hmm. the gift. And I thank AA for the gift of my life, for the gift of connecting mm-hmm. me to you and to, and to my creator. And the other thing was... Uh, Natalie Cole movie. I see everything in books, movies, everything. But but, uh, Natalie Cole was a drug addict, alcoholic. She made a movie. And at the end, she said, I have been given the grace of God. I may not deserve it, but I'm not going to waste one moment of it. And neither am I. So that's what I have to say. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. I love you, and you're a remarkable person. I never would have guessed by just sitting and hearing you for three to five minutes 
all these great things that we've discussed and to know how AA has completely transformed your life. That's a great message for people everywhere. And again, many thanks. Oh, thank you. So I'm honored. I am honored. Thank you so very much. Great. I hope you don't mind the potential of people in countries around the world hearing you, but this will just broaden your appeal. That's all. Oh, that's it's going to be great. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Jackie B. for telling her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least everyone you know? That includes sponsees, sponsors, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you leave a multi-star rating wherever you get this podcast, that'll help others find it more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 